Hello, everybody. Welcome to the very first episode of the Indian Interest Podcast. This is something new that I'm doing from today onwards. So, uh, in a way, I am dusting off my old brand. So, some of you will know about this. Most of you won't know about this. But uh, I have been on Twitter for quite some time, for several years. And for the longest time, I had this anonymous Twitter account called the Indian Interest. So I used to tweet. I've been tweeting since maybe 2015, 2016. And I had this anonymous account, which did not have my name on it. The name there was the Indian Interest. And that Twitter account still exists. But in 2019, late 2019 onwards, I started using my own name uh, on a Twitter account. So essentially, I am dusting off my old brand and uh, giving it a new life because uh, that's what this channel is essentially about. It's about understanding the Indian interest, the Indian national interest uh, from our own perspective. So what is this podcast going to be about? It's going to be mostly a weekly podcast, sometimes more than a week, if uh, the circumstances demand it. But it's mostly going to be a weekly podcast. And we're going to look at the world. We're going to look at geopolitics, current affairs, current events, and various happenings around the world from the Indian perspective, from the perspective of the Indian national interest. Now, there are many news channels and many talk shows and whatnot that report on geopolitics and other current affairs events worldwide these days. But what I see from my perspective, I see that they are not reporting it from an Indian perspective. And some of these news channels, etc. are very popular nowadays. Many of you also, I suppose, watch them. But they are not reporting what's happening from an Indian perspective. They are either reporting it from a US perspective, a NATO perspective, a EU perspective, or maybe, maybe a Chinese perspective or a Russian perspective or a Pakistani perspective. But none of them is reporting what's happening from India's perspective. So the Indian interest is going to be about reporting, about examining the world from an Indian perspective. So that's what it's going to be about. So today, I'm going to talk about uh, India's place in the geopolitical landscape. So first of all, so first of all, this, this podcast is not going to be about moralizing. I'm not going to moralize you and tell you what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad. In geopolitics, there is no right or wrong. There is no good or bad. Those of you who have been following this channel for some time will know that I have said this on many occasions. So there's no right or wrong or good or bad in geopolitics. If you can, you do it. If you can't, then you will have to suffer the consequences. So it's all about power and strength. That's what the world is about. And that's what geopolitics is about. And, uh, you know, I, it would be great if the world was one one family, Vasudeva Kutumbakam. And, uh, you know, global commentators, especially Western commentators, expect India to behave in that manner. Like the world is one family, the world is one Vasudeva, Vasudeva Kutumbakam. But if you examining, if you examine the, the events of the past 1000 years of Indian history, you will know that the world is not one family. And if you if you uh, think that the world is one family, you're going to pay a very hefty price for that. So we're going to examine the world from a realistic perspective. And uh, pardon the cliche, but we're going to examine it, examine the world from the perspective of Lord Vishnugupta Chanakya. So that's what's uh, what this podcast is going to be about, essentially. Right. So today I'm going to examine, I'm going to describe the global geopolitical landscape to you all. And we're going to understand what is India's place in the global geopolitical landscape. So the world 
is a big jungle and the only law that is in force is the rule of the jungle and there are lots of beasts in this jungle large beasts and small beasts dangerous beasts and weak beasts and in every corner in every shadow there are dangers that are lurking right so where is india's place in the hierarchy of the beasts and which beasts are aligned together which beasts are rivals towards each other and which beasts could potentially be india's friends and which are our enemies now of course there are no friends or enemies in geopolitics but i'm just uh, paraphrasing summar- summarizing right so that's what we are going to discuss but before we go there i think it behooves me to address the elephant in the room or should i say the missile in the room so right now i mean in the past couple of days there's this big news that has emerged that apparently an indian missile uh, entered pakistani territory pakistani airspace flew more than 100 kilometers and then crashed somewhere so that's the news that we are uh, that we have uh, received and i think yesterday the indian government acknowledged that there was a malfunction or or a misfire accidental firing of a missile and then this missile was uh, it was neutralized in mid air and it was not carrying any explosive warhead and india uh, said it is a good thing that there was no loss of life in pakistan so that's the news that has emerged and what is the reality behind this right that's the question so it looks like this was a brahmos missile so let me share my screen with you and uh, show you the path that this missile took one second where is that mm. yes let's take a look at this so this is what the pakistanis shared in their press conference uh, as you can see they they have shown the path of the indian missile it took off from sirsa in northern northwest india it went in a certain direction then took a 90 degree turn went into pakistan and then uh, crashed down impacted a place called mia chunnu or something like that inside deep inside pakistan 124 kilometers inside pakistan now if you if you calculate the length that the missile the, the distance that the missile flew it's nearly 300 kilometers now if if you all know about the brahmos missile you will know that there are there have been two types two categories of brahmos missiles so the brahmos is an indo russian joint venture it's a missile that's been developed jointly by india and russia now before india acceded to the missile technology control regime the mtcr india was not allowed to receive technology missile technology from another country uh, which would ha- in in which the missile would have a range of more than 300 kilometers now russia is also a, a signatory to the of the mtcr so before india joined the mtcr a few years ago four five years ago india was not allowed to get uh, to acquire missiles whose range was more than 300 kilometers so the brahmos had a range initially of about 290 kilometers that's the official range that uh, was specified now if you understand how missiles work you will know that just by changing the fuel you can have an extended range but let's not go into that that thing right now so the brahmos the original brahmos had a range of 290 kilometers officially and after india acceded to the mtcr uh there is a newer version of the brahmos that has been de- that is that has been developed maybe several versions of the brahmos uh it is believed that one version has a range of around 700 kilometers maybe some other versions would have a longer range etc so the uh the path of the missile that the pakistanis shared uh 
it kind of shows that the missile flew about 290 or 300 kilometers, which would indicate that this could be a BrahMos missile, right? And they also said that the missile was flying at Mark 3. So what is Mark 3? Mark 1 is one times the speed of sound. Mark 2 is twice the speed of sound. Mark 3 is thrice the speed of sound. So this Indian missile was flying at nearly three times the speed of sound, which again points towards BrahMos because BrahMos is a supersonic missile, which has a speed of about 2.8 Mark, Mark 2.8, almost Mark 3. So all the indications seem to point towards this being a BrahMos missile that was fired into Pakistan. And the way it, it changes the, its direction suddenly is also characteristic of the BrahMos missile. Now, it is said that it has been claimed that this was an unarmed missile. It did not carry an explosive warhead. Now, if you look at the uh, images and the video that has come out from Pakistan, you will see a large area of destruction. Several buildings have been flattened. There's been a huge hole that's been dug into the ground. And then there is some imagery of the, the, of the debris of the missile itself. And that's where you get a clue that this may be the, the BrahMos. Now, so here's the thing. If the missile did not have a warhead, if there was no explosive charge in the missile, then it would have simply punched a hole into whatever building it went into or punched a hole into the ground. It would not have caused a big area of devastation. Now, a picture is worth a thousand words and a video is worth a thousand pictures. So let me show you a video of what a Brahmos does to a ship when it does not have a warhead. It just punches through the ship. So let's take a look at this. So that is an example of what the BrahMos missile does when it doesn't have a warhead. It just slashes through a ship, cuts it into two. The kinetic energy of the impact is enough to destroy the ship once and for all. It is unsalvageable. It is just destroyed. Let me show you one more time how, how deadly the impact is. So that's what an unarmed Brahmos does. It cuts a ship into two or cuts the target into two just on the basis of the enormous kinetic energy that it carries. There is no explosion. It's a clean cut into two pieces. Now, what you see in Pakistan is not characteristic of that. There is a big area that has been completely flattened. So that does not point to an unarmed Brahmos. It seems to be a Brahmos that did carry some kind of explosive uh, warhead. So what exactly has happened is the question. Now the Indian uh, side has not revealed any significant details. It has expressed regret for what happened and said that it's good that there was no loss of life. The Pakistanis are saying that this was an Indian missile that traveled this much uh, distance and it was again unarmed. That's what they are saying. But the evidence seems to point towards something different. So the first question is, was this really a Brahmos? I mean, India has a multiple. Uh, India has a multiplicity of missiles in its stable. M many kinds of missiles. We have been developing all kinds of missiles. In the past year, there have been like I don't know at least a dozen missile tests of various kinds of missiles. There are cruise missiles. There are there is a subsonic cruise missile. We have the supersonic BrahMos, and there are other missiles as well. So, is this a missile that we are not aware of? That's also a possibility. Or is it just the BrahMos? So what exactly happened? So let's examine the scenarios 
of what could have happened the first scenario is we should just take what has been said at face value that uh, i think i'm not sure which journalist reported this there was supposedly an inspection of the missiles going on and during the inspection there was an accidental launch of the missile so this seems to be the official version from india that there was an accidental launch of the missile which was not supposed to happen and then it was uh, deactivated before it reached whatever target it was supposed to reach and did any uh, damage that was not supposed to be done so this is the official version so if this version is correct it would indicate that the, that there was a goof up in the uh, in the indian military and they launched a missile that they should not have launched if that is the case if that is what we should believe then th that is that indicates that there is a problem and which needs to be addressed another scenario is that this was a deliberate launch of a missile and it was not intended to destroy any any target but just to test test the kind of response you would get from pakistan so that is another scenario and if you look at the response that we got from pakistan there was no response they just watched it the, the missile flew so fast it could not be uh, intercepted if you if you if you have a missile that flies at almost three times the speed of sound it's almost impossible to stop it or to intercept intercept it it's flying faster than a bullet and there are only maybe two or three countries in the world or maybe five countries that have the technology to possibly intercept a missile like the brahmos the pakistanis don't have it india has the technology the barak 8 missile which is a missile interceptor so the response from the pakistanis was no response they just watched the missile fly and then the missile impacted the ground on its own without pakistani inter intervention so that is a second scenario and the third scenario we can think of is that once again this was a deliberate launch of the missile and it actually took out a target which was supposed to be taken out so maybe there was something in that place mia channu that that village in pakistan that had some value there was a high value target and that one that india wanted to be taken out so that is a third possibility so possibility a is that it was a completely accidental firing of the missile which is not good possibility 2 is that it was a deliberate firing of the missile to test the pakistani response possibility 3 is that this was a deliberate firing to take out a high value target these are the three possibilities i can think of if you guys have any possibilities any other possibilities in mind uh let me know in the comments below so that's what that's that's what i can say about what's happened thus far based on the information that we have right so maybe in in the coming years maybe 5 10 years on the line we may know actually what really happened and what what was done as of today we uh, the indian side is not going to reveal what really happened i i i am very doubtful about the claim that this was an accidental misfire of the missile this is a nuclear capable missile and the missile uh, and the country that it was fired into was pakistan which is another nuclear power power state you don't accidentally fire nuclear capable missiles into the territory of a nuclear power you just don't do it so i i am highly doubtful about that theory so i think the scenario 2 and scenario 3 is more likely but as of today there's not much chance of us knowing what really happened so that's what i can say about the uh, about this saga of the brahmos missile what seems to be the brahmos missile that went into pakistan okay now let's come back to the main issue at hand we want to look at the global geopolitical landscape and understand 
India's position in the global geopolitical landscape. So to understand, to understand geopolitics and to understand the global geopolitical landscape, you have to understand what the world looks like. This is a map of the world. You really need to be become familiar with the map of the world. Where is India? What are the other countries in the world? What are the locations? How far are they from India? What are the continents? Which are the major powers in each continent? And so on and so forth. So you, if you really want to understand geopolitics, you need to familiarize yourself thoroughly with the map of the world. Because that itself tells you half the story. Because geography is destiny just like demography is destiny. So this is the map of the world. And we wish to understand India's place in the world, not just geographically, but from the perspective of the global power play. So that's what that's the kind of uh, thing we're going to discuss today. So how do we understand? What are the perspectives that we need to look into? From what angles do we need to approach India's position in the world? So it's all about power. Your position in on the geopolitical arena is all about your power and the power that others have, right? So what is power? Power takes multiple forms. There is soft power and hard power. Indians are enamored, obsessed with soft power. Soft power this and soft power that. Let me tell you a big secret or small secret. Soft power is irrelevant if you don't have hard power. Soft power is valuable only when you have the hard power to back it up. Soft power is your culture, your diplomacy, your powers of persuasion, how well you are received across the world, what is the opinion of people about you across the world, how influential you are and all that. That is called soft power. Hard power is economic power and military power. Right. So without hard power, let's say you have the best culture in the world, but you are dirt poor. Is anyone going to respect you or is, it, is, it, is anyone going to care? Right? So that's how it works. So let's examine the world from the perspective of hard power. The first measure of hard power is how much money you have. What is the size of your economy? And the, the best way, or the simplest way of looking at the size and the power of your economy is to look at your GDP, uh, annual GDP. Right, gross domestic product. The gross domestic product is is the is the, is a measure of your economic output of your country in one year. So let's take a look at the world from the perspective of gross domestic product. Here you have a comparison. So we are looking at nominal GDP, nominal GDP in terms of trillions of dollars. There is also purchasing power parity, which is a whole different thing. Let's not look into that. We'll just keep it simple and look at nominal GDP. So the world's biggest economy from this perspective is the United States. It has a nominal GDP of $20.89 trillion. Number two is China, 14.72. Then you have Japan, Germany, UK. And then you have at number six position, India. India's economy has shrunk a little because of the COVID crisis. So India's economy is roughly $2.66 trillion. Dollars, right? That's what it is. The figures, the numbers may be off here and there a little bit. It doesn't matter. You get the overall uh, big picture perspective by looking at this comparison. So this is a view of the top 15 economies in the world, right? And if you can see, Russia is at number 11. Its economy is about $1.48 trillion. And because of the bucket loads of sanctions that have been dumped upon Russia, its economy is going to shrink. It may no longer remain a great economic power or even a medium economic power in the next three to five years. That's what the US would would like to that's what the US would like to happen. 
So this is the ranking, the world, the global ranking, the top 15 nations from the perspective of nominal GDP, the, the overall economic size and output of each country. So India is number six. India was supposed to have uh, surpassed the UK a couple of years ago, but it looks like India is back at number six. So as long as India keeps growing in the next uh, 10, 20 years, India may be reach number three at least, uh, if that happens. So this is one way of looking at the world and India's rank and position in the world from the terms, from the position of economy. Now let's look at another way of examining the rankings, global rankings, which is GDP per capita. So what you do in GDP per capita is you take your overall GDP, your overall, overall GDP, and you divide it by the population of your country. So if you take the US GDP, which is $20.89 trillion, and you divide it by the US population, you get a GDP per capita of 63,000 whatever dollars per year. Right. So that so this is an indicator of your overall level of prosperity of your country, of your overall living standards. This is a very rough approximate measure of the living standards and prosperity of each country. So the US has a GDP per capita of sixty three thousand dollars. Australia is number two at sixty fifty one. I'm talking about the top 15 economies. Then uh, Germany is uh, forty six. And if you look at India, India is at number 15. India's GDP per capita is abysmal. It is 1,000, it's less than $2,000 per capita, which tells you that India is not a developed country. India is still a very poor country, right? Uh, China, if you see, has a GDP per capita of about $10,000, five times that of India. So, so China's level of prosperity is five times more than India's. China's living standards are five times better, five times better than that of those, those of India. So even though India is number six in the overall rankings, and if you look at GDP per capita, it's the last among the top 15 economies in the world. So this is another way of looking at your uh, at the at the living standards of a, of a country or of uh, of comparing the living standards of, of countries now let's take a third approach which is to look at the population of each country because population matters if you look at your overall national power population matters if you have a large population especially if it's a young population you have a lot of potential there so if we look at the population india is number 2 just slightly behind china Number three is the US, then Brazil, Russia, Mexico, Japan, Germany, and so on and so forth. So from this perspective, India is number two right after China. Now let's look at a different perspective, which is overall land area in terms of millions of square kilometers. Because if you have a large land area, it means you have a, a large amount of resources that are available to you in that land. The more land you have, the more resources you have. Minerals, uh, hydrocarbons, coal, uh, various uh, rare earth metals and whatnot, right? Even, even rivers and water and a lo lot of other things. So the more land you have at your disposal, the more resources you have at your disposal. So from this perspective, you will find that Russia has the largest land area, 17 million square kilometers. Canada is number two. The United States is number three. China, Brazil, Australia. Australia, which, which with its tiny population, has is more than twice the land area of India. So India is number seven. 
in this ranking. And then you have Mexico, France, Spain, and all that. So this is another way of looking at what is the potential amount of resources that you have available to you. Now, let's look at something that is harder, real hard power, which is your military budget. What is the amount of military expenditure that each country is doing per year? So these are, I think, reasonably uh, recent figures. So if you look at the military spending in terms of billions of dollars per year, the U.S. spends $778 billion per year on its military. $778 billion. China is number two. $252 billion they are spending per year on their military. India is number three at $72.9 billion, which is less than one-tenth of the military spending per year of the U.S. Then you have Russia, then you have UK, and then you have a, uh, a new entrant, which is Saudi Arabia. So if you will look at if you will look at this list, it's not 15 countries anymore; it's 19 countries. And I have introduced four new countries in this list, which is Saudi Arabia, Israel, Pakistan, and North Korea. And the reasons will soon become apparent. I'm sure some of you can guess at those reasons. So Saudi Arabia is a is a proper entrant in this because it is actually at number six when it comes to military spending. It's, uh, military spending is $57.5 billion. That's a huge amount of money it's spending on its military. And I think it is purchasing most of its arms, ammunition, weaponry, everything from the United States, which is not surprising because, well, because of, because of history. So you have Saudi Arabia, then you have Germany, France, Japan, South Korea, and so on and so forth. So uh, Russia is at number four. Despite it not being in the top 10 economies, it is at number four in terms of military spending. And UK is at number five, 59.2, almost $60 billion. So India is at number three, but it's way behind China, right? It's, it's less, it's about one fourth of what India spends about one fourth of what China spends per year in terms of its military, which is not surprising because India's economy is about one fifth of that of China. So it's spending proportionately slightly more than what China is spending in terms of percentage of GDP on military spending. And yet it's not that much. If you look at Pakistan, it's spending about $9 billion per year on its military. And you have Israel, which is spending more than Pakistan, almost $14 billion per year. Now, let's look at real hard power, which is this. So this is a ranking of the nuclear powers. And the ranking is based on how many nuclear warheads you have. Now, I am not sure if these numbers are accurate numbers because no country actually divulges exactly how many uh, warheads it has, how many missiles it has. It, it's, it's always good to keep these things ambiguous. And these figures are mostly from the West. So from this so what we see is Russia is believed to have about 6,250 nuclear warheads. The US comes at number two in this ranking at 5,550 nuclear warheads, which is still a hell of a lot. China has is believed to have about 350 nuclear warheads. France is believed to have 290 nuclear warheads. The United Kingdom, the UK is believed to have 225 nuclear warheads. 
the pakistanis are believed to have 165 india is believed to have 150 and israel is believed to have 90 and north korea maybe 40 or 50 so these are approximate figures these are all western perceptions or projections we should be a little careful in uh, believing all of this some countries may have more some countries may have less it's also about perception and and, and uh, propaganda to some extent as well so this is what is officially believed to be uh, the ranking that is the mainstream perception of what the ranking is in terms of nuclear warheads now there are certain uh, things that we have to understand there is something called a nuclear triad what is a nuclear triad a nuclear triad is the ability to deliver to launch your nuclear warheads from land from air and from sea so uh, from land you would launch it from ballistic missiles whether medium range or long range or inter- intercontinental range ballistic missiles so that is your land launched nuclear missiles then if you launch your nuclear missiles nuclear warheads from air it would be done from an aircraft maybe in the case of india you would have a sukhoi 30 mki fighter plane going deep into a foreign country's territory and launching an extended range brahmos supersonic missile which would be tipped with a nuclear warhead that's one way of doing it in the case of russia they have these long range uh, strategic bombers which could launch uh, nuclear cruise missiles deep into an enemy's territory and so on and so forth the americans also have various strategic bombers that could launch that could drop gravity bombs or cruise missiles etc so that is your air launched nuclear warheads the third component of the strategic triad is your sea launched nuclear missiles so that is to ensure that you have a second a credible second strike capability imagine this scenario imagine that your enemy country your adversary has launched an overwhelming massive first strike on your country which has totally wiped out your army your air force your navy and your leadership so your country is is totally defenseless so if your enemy is able to do that they have won the war in the first 5 minutes right so the objective of your sea based uh, nuclear deterrent is to ensure that even if your enemy destroys your country completely your submarines will be able to retaliate and do the same to the enemy because submarines are mostly undetectable especially if they are nuclear submarines they can remain submerged underwater under the sea for months at a time so you can never know where they are and from anywhere in the world if they come to know that this thing has happened then they can launch a second strike at the enemy and and pay the enemy back in his own coin so that is why you need to have a uh, nuclear submarines and a sea based nuclear deterrent so that is the strategic triad uh, land based air based and sea based so how many countries have that the americans have it the russians have it the chinese have it the french have it the uk has it and most likely india also now has that because we have uh, uh we have launched at least two nuclear submarines indigenous nuclear submarines we also have a nuclear uh russian nuclear submarine that is on 10 year lease or something like that and we have a nuclear uh, capable ballistic missiles that can be launched from submarines so we have a strategic triad in place i am not sure of the exact uh, uh status of the development of the sagarika missiles 
of the K3 missiles, the K, uh, there's a whole family of missiles that can be launched from submarines. Even the Brahmos can be launched from submarines. So I'm not sure what is the exact status. There is a 700 meter, the kilometer range ballistic missile. Then there is an intermediate range ballistic missile as well that can be launched from submarines. So it may be under development or it may be already operational. We not we are not quite sure. But that is the third um, leg of India's strategic triad, which is the submarine-based capability. So India also has this capability and India is further developing that. So that is the ranking in terms of nuclear missiles. Now there has been a study. There have been several studies of in the past decade that demonstrate that India has sufficient fissile material to, to build more than 2,000 nuclear warheads. Now, if whether that is all used in doing that or not is not known. India will never reveal that. India should not reveal that. But India has sufficient fissile material to, to build more than, I believe, 2,000 nuclear warheads. Of course, we don't need the, those many nuclear warheads. Even 100 nuclear warheads is enough of a deterrent to give pause to any of India's enemies. And we know who the, who the enemies are. We, we don't have to go into that. So India is believed to have about officially about 150 nuclear warheads, which is more than, more than sufficient. In the case of the UK, we can see that uh, the figure is 225, out of which about half are deployed and half are disassembled to some extent. So only half of these missiles are operational. And the UK has a sea-based deterrent. The UK doesn't have uh, an air-based deterrent or a land-based deterrent. The UK's nuclear deterrent is entirely sea-based. I think the UK has four nuclear submarines. And these submarines have a number of uh, American ICBMs, Intercontinental Ballistic Missiles. It used to be the Polaris missile in the past. Uh, more recently, it is a newer version of newer kind of missile. I forget the name of the missile, but those are American missiles that the UK uh, that the UK's submarines have. And the warheads that are placed in those American missiles are British warheads. So that is the British uh, deterrent. The French also have uh, submarine base deterrence. The Chinese have a triad, the US has a triad, the Russians have a triad, India has a triad, and Israel is interesting. The Israelis have never openly declared their nuclear power status, but they are widely believed to have around 90 or 100 nuclear warheads and a, and a variety of missiles to uh, deliver those nuclear warheads. Now, if you look at Israel's place on the world map, you will see that it's surrounded by enemies. Let me uh, go back go back to the map. Okay, not this map. I think it's too small. Let me bring in a different different map. Maybe I will share a different kind of map. One second. Just a second. Let me go into that. Here we are. So let's take a look at Israel. Israel is a tiny country in on the Med, on the eastern Mediterranean Mediterranean coast. Not here. Sorry, not here. <laughs> Israel is here south of Lebanon. So if you see Israel's location, it is surrounded by enemies, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Egypt, and they have all gone to war with Israel at various times in the past. Of course, now things are changing. The Saudis are looking at Israel in a completely different light, and so is the UAE, etc. Only Iran is a big enemy now for Israel. But Israel maintains a nuclear deterrent 
nuclear weapons, at least 90 warheads, it is believed, in order to, uh, to keep open the Samson op option, which is that if you're going to destroy me, if, if, if the situation is such that uh, our country is going to be destroyed, then we're going to take everybody else down with us. So that is the last option that Israel has. And that is the reason why it has developed all these nuclear missiles. It has a nuclear warhead facility in Beersheva, I believe, Dimona nuclear plant, I believe. That's what uh, seems to be the case. Anyway, so that is the global ranking of the great powers in terms of nuclear warheads, which is one of the major, which is one of the most, which is the most powerful weapon that you can have, right? So this is all about hard power. If you look at hard power from a different way, from a more comprehensive way, this is the way of looking at it. You look at the GDP of a country in terms of trillions of dollars. You look at the military spending that each country is able to do per year in terms of billions of dollars. And then you look at the number of nuclear warheads that the country has. If you look at these three factors, you will get a very good idea of the hard power that a country has. So this is the global ranking from the pure hard power perspective. So economic power is a big a component of that. Military spending tells you how powerful the military is to some extent. And nuclear warheads uh, tell a story of their own. Now, when we talk about military spending, we have to understand that military spending could also be about pensions, and salaries and all that. So a large portion of some countries' military spending goes into all that, you know, which doesn't really uh, tell you how much weapons it's able to procure or develop. So it's a rough measure of the military strength of a country. So this here is your comprehensive view of the hard power of the uh, nuclear power in the top 15 economies in the world, right? So this is one way of looking at the global geopolitical landscape. Another way of looking at it is looking at alliances, military alliances, and trying to understand which is the major power in uh, each continent, right? Because uh, because that is also very important. If you have military alliances, etc., that tells you a whole story. So let's, let's take a look at what are the major powers in the world from the alliance perspective. So what are the, what are the major alliances that the world has? One of the major alliances in the world is NATO. So let's look at what NATO is. NATO stands for North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Let's take a look at it. This is NATO. This is the map of NATO in 1990 and in 2015. So what is NATO? NATO is NATO originated as an anti-USSR military alliance. Now, the country that leads NATO is the US, the United States. So if you look at this map, it doesn't show you that the US and Canada also are also part of NATO. And Iceland, I believe, is also part of NATO. But it's only showing you the European uh, situation, the situation on the ground in Europe. So this is a map of NATO. It, it was an anti-USSR alliance. And the USSR, as you can see, the Soviet Union had its own alliance called the Warsaw Pact, which was in place until 1990. So after the dissolution, the breakup of the USSR, NATO expanded slowly eastward. And in 2015, it had taken a 
taken into its fold the entirety of germany poland czech republic slovakia hungary slovenia romania bulgaria greece turkey lithuania latvia estonia and so on and so forth it expanded significantly eastward and that is the root of the entire crisis uh, of the ukraine crisis so anyway if you look at europe today the major continental alliance in europe is nato and nato is led by the us the us is the overall hegemonic power in nato it is the country that calls the shots it is the country that is the most military power and the most economic power so nato is a very significant alliance in europe what other alliances do we do we have you have the european union so the european union is kind of a something that overlaps to some extent with nato overlaps to a significant extent with nato so this is the situation of the eu the european union as of 12 february 2020 as you can see many of the nato member states are also eu member states turkey is an official candidate for joining the eu it is also a nato member state so that so so what we can see from this what we can see from this is that okay let me show you one more perspective of what is the major power in europe which is this so where are us nuclear bombs stored in europe you have at least four countries in europe where us nuclear bombs missiles are stored one is uh, this place volkel in the netherlands so the netherlands is a member of nato and it has american nuclear weapons on its territory you also have kleine brogel in in uh, belgium then you have two locations in italy and you have buchel in germany and you have in cirlik in turkey where i believe at least 50 most likely us nuclear warheads are are, are located the approximate number of us nuclear weapons in europe is 150 and it's essentially all claimer wikipedia is not always accurate but take a look at this so american <laughs> military bases if you see here as you can see oops not not that so there are all these countries that have american military bases on their soil what what does it tell you and and many of these military bases are permanent bases so you have australia you have the philippines you have japan you have south korea you have most of the uh, these arabic countries the the you have oman you have saudi arabia you have turkey and you have a bunch of european countries and so on and so forth so that's where you have american military bases if you look at the details you have australia iraq niger syria and then bulgaria bosnia herzegovina belgium cameroon germany look at the number of us military bases in germany dozens israel italy iraq iraq of course we know what happened there japan japan has dozens of american bases kosovo kuwait south korea and so on and so forth so what what does this tell you we have to understand the the relationship relationships between countries based on this so a country in which another country has a permanent military base cannot be seen or regarded as a sovereign country if you see japan japan has dozens i believe dozens of us military bases on its soil and this uh, 
presence of us bases dates back to the second world to the end of the second world war from the 1940s and 50s onwards until now there is a permanent and extensive american military presence in japan what does this tell us it tells us that japan is not a sovereign nation if you have a foreign permanent military presence on your country you are not a sovereign nation the japanese constitution was written by the americans under the supervision and guidance of the americans and so on and so forth if you look at germany there is a permanent us military military presence in germany they even have us nuclear weapons on german soil which tells us that germany is not a sovereign nation it is under us occupation these are just facts of life there is nothing controversial about what i'm saying there are american military bases in italy from the at least the 1950s onwards permanent military bases and there you even have uh, nuclear weapons stationed there so once again it tells you that the even italy cannot really in the real sense of the world be regarded as a sovereign nation it has a permanent american military presence on its soil and that goes for so many other countries now if you look at the eu if you look at the eu and look at the major economies in the eu let me bring that up again let me bring that up again so the biggest economy in the eu is germany germany is not a sovereign nation it has a permanent american military presence on its soil if you look at france france is a member of nato which has certain consequences if you look at look at italy italy has permanent us military installations on its soil canada is in the us uh canada of course is not in europe then if you look at uh the other european countries like the uk etc these are again part of nato and so on if you look at turkey also it's it has american presence on its soil so if you look at the eu the major nations are under us occupation so to tell to look at the world if to look at europe from a realistic perspective one would have to say that the major power in europe is not germany it's not france it's not italy it is the us america is the hegemon in europe via nato and via the european union and the only uh, competitor so to say is russia right and russia is a U- eurasian actor it's not only in europe it's also in asia all the way to the uh, uh, e- to the, to the pacific ocean in the east so the major hegemonic power in europe is the united states in asia once again like i showed you the map let me show it again uh if you look at what how things are in asia one second where is that um one second okay so if you look at asia you will see that there are lots of countries in the middle east that have a permanent us military presence you have the philippines that has a permanent us military presence there is a significant us military presence in south korea from the 1950s onwards uh there is a us military presence i believe in indonesia as well and a massive us military presence in japan there is a us military presence in taiwan as well there used to be a presence in afghanistan in pakistan 
and there is a massive presence in australia in new zealand in much of the south pacific as well and there is a significant us presence in many african nations as well so that is what you mean by being a superpower you have a global hegemony a global military presence you have the ability to intervene militarily anywhere in the world at 60 minutes notice at most so that's what you mean by a superpower right so that is what the us is the us is a superpower a genuine superpower uh so that is the major alliance that the, the major alliances that the us has the us has another alliance called the five eyes alliance which is the us canada the uk australia and new zealand the five children nations of the uk of the english the british the english they went and colonized large parts of the world and wherever they colonized they created countries the us canada australia and new zealand and the mother nation is the uk and today the hegemonic power is the us so these five english speaking nations they are the five eyes alliance that is the closest and most tightly knit alliance that the us has and again the us is the main big dog in the alliance everybody else is like a vassal state right a tributary state and in in europe also all the eu nations whether it is belgium brussels or germany or anybody else they are all vassal states so to say of the us including the uk so to look at it realistically the united states is the successor state of the british empire the british empire never never really died it simply was transferred to the us and the us has a global hegemony today you could regard it as an empire as an imperial system because it is the us rules based system that is in place in force across the world uh, the entire global economic system is run under the uh, under the system that is the bretton woods system that was in the, that, that is an american system all the global financial uh, institutions the eu the I, uh, sorry the the wb world bank the imf etc are all american systems the swift system can be switched off by the americans anytime they want for a certain country the global reserve currency is the us dollar so you can see the U- us is the overall economic hegemon in the world and the overall military hegemon in the world that's what you mean by a superpower right so so the us is the real overall superpower and if you look at the great powers so how do you categorize the powers you have a superpowers great powers middle powers and small powers you could also look at it as global powers transcontinental powers regional powers and small local powers so th- there's only one superpower today the us china aspires to be a superpower china wants to replace and displace the us in the next 20 30 years at most by 2049 so to say right so that's the great the the great chinese dream the great dream of the chinese communist party but as of today the us is the undisputed superpower the undisputed global power if you look at great powers you have countries like well if you ask uh, geopolitics experts they would say that germany is a great power the uk is a great power france is a great power india is a great power uh, china is a great power russia is a great power and so on but if you look at it carefully germany the uk japan 
etc are nothing but us vassal states so those are not really like i said not really sovereign nations because they have a permanent us military presence on their soil and they don't have any really independent foreign policy etc right they really can't go against the wishes and the dictates of the us so they are not really sovereign powers and the only real great global power is the us what is the definition of a sovereign power a sovereign power is a is a country that is completely independent of other countries in terms of its decision making its internal governance and its foreign policy completely independent right now can the japanese do certain things that would displease the us absolutely not can the germans do certain things that the us doesn't like for instance buy gas and oil and coal from from russia no they simply cannot do it therefore the germans don't have an independent foreign policy their foreign policy to a large extent is dictated by the us so the germans again are not truly in the real sense of the world a sovereign nation neither are the japanese neither are most of the nato nations or the eu nations right even the turks were forced to close off the turkish straits to the black sea to interdict access to russian warships the last couple of weeks they did it under us pressure right so that's what you mean by hegemony and lack of sovereignty many of these so called great powers are not really sovereign nations and to some extent even india is not a sovereign nation because india also cannot do certain things that would displease certain very powerful countries right so let's take one more look at the world to put everything into the real into the proper perspective here goes this is the real way to look at the world it's about the alliances so the us japan germany uk france italy canada south korea australia spain saudi arabia and you and israel are all under the us umbrella either as nato member states or as us allies in some form or the other or because they have a permanent us military presence on their soil or some other or some other such thing so many of these countries have nuclear warheads the uk france and israel so these are all under the us umbrella so they can be considered to be nations that are under completely under american hegemony so that tells you how big a power the us is it is a real transcontinental and global power there is another block geopolitical block china north korea and pakistan so north korea and pakistan are the two attack dogs of the chinese north korea is used to um, to keep the japanese and the americans on their toes and pakistan is used to counterbalance and to continuously harass india right and these days after the events of the last 2 3 weeks after the events of late february onwards the russians are essentially going into the chinese embrace so you could consider russia to be one foot outside and one foot inside the chinese alliance they need china now because china is a massive economy and russia is under incredible back breaking bone crushing american sanctions they're going to use they're going to need the Ch- the chinese assistance in order to survive and and um, carry on so russia is the, the the amount of sanctions the americans have thrown on russia have ensured that the russians go into the chinese embrace so that's what we are seeing right now a realignment so what we can see here 
are the top 15 to 19 uh, nations in the world in terms of hard power and you can see the clear bipolarization of the world right here the major block is the us block the smaller block is the chinese block and russia seems to be growing going more and more into the chinese coalition and that leaves us india and that that, that makes us ask where does india fit into this entire scenario so the americans would want india very much to become another vassal state of theirs they also they already have a great deal of hold over india uh, there are lots of things lots of decisions that india cannot quite make because it would strongly displease the us there are lots of things about india's internal governance itself that india is not able to do because of the pressure that is being exerted by the us in a variety of ways uh there they they can they they are a country that can engineer a color revolution in your country like they did in um, in the middle east in in egypt in uh, north africa in ukraine etc and we have seen glimpses of that in the last 2 3 years in the winters in delhi so those are essentially warnings towards india that this is what we can do so there is a significant amount of uh, pressure on india there's a lot that india is not allowed to do even internally in the internal affairs of our country because of external uh, pressure so the us would want india to come into their coalition to become a proper full fledged vassal state uh, india of course doesn't want that as we can see in the past couple of weeks the two three weeks india has repeatedly abstained in the un security council uh, votes uh, against russia and that has made the americans really really furious and angry and we have seen the reactions all over social media so india is trying to chart its own course in the global geopolitical jungle india is not a big fish as you can see from the size of the economy 2.66 trillion dollars it is not very big it's number 6 in the world in terms of its economy and a lot depends on india remaining integrated with the global system so you can see what's happening to russia right now they have been cut off from the global system and their economy is in free fall right now if the same were to happen to india india's economy would not grow at all india is india's economy would shrink so india needs to remain in the good books of the us as far as possible for the next 10 20 years for its economy to grow for its economy to grow to at least the first step 5 trillion dollars next step 10 trillion dollars once india reaches 10 trillion dollars of economy india will be a whole different beast in the global geopolitical jungle right now india is a medium sized beast but it's not uh it's not a country that can chart its own course yet so india right now in this is in this position between a rock and a hard place as i hope this chart shows you so that's where india is india needs to do a very careful very well balanced tight rope act india needs to stay in the good books of the western nations mostly the us india also needs a strong russia for a variety of reasons if you look at the map of the world it will tell you why india needs uh 
why India needs a stronger Russia. Let's take a look at the map. So the map tells you half the story. As you can see, Russia dominates Eurasia from the north. It is the biggest nation state in the whole of Eurasia and in the whole of Asia as well. And it is the only nation apart from India that can counterbalance China. India does not have a common boundary with Russia, which means that there is no cause for conflict in the foreseeable future between India and Russia. But Russia does share a very lengthy boundary with China. And this has been a very hot boundary in the past. In the 1960s, the Russians and the Chinese almost went to war along the Usuri River, the Usuri River clashes. There were these massive military clashes, hundreds of soldiers died. The two countries nearly went to war. The Russians, the USSR almost nuked China. The Americans saved the Chinese. So that boundary dispute was resolved about 20 or so years ago. But the Russians know very well that all boundary disputes with China, if they are not open right now, they are simply dormant. They will be reopened by the Chinese at the right time. So Russia and China are not going to be long-term allies. They are long-term enemies. That is the curse of geography. And therefore, a strong Russia is always going to be good for China to give us leverage in negotiations and in geopolitics vis-a-vis -vis not only China, but also the US. So from the perspective of India's national interest, it is essential for, it would be good for us for Russia to remain a major global power, right? So that is what you can see from all the various uh, data points that I've shown you, especially this chart, which clearly shows you that, that, that the world is now increasingly becoming a bipolar place, two major factions, and India is kind of in the middle. India is still a major non-NATO US military partner of some kind. India does buy weaponry from the US, but India needs Russian weaponry as well, especially spare parts and all that. And the Russians in the past have a long record, a long history of being much more reliable partners than anybody else in the world towards India. There's a great deal of warmth as well. Of course, the feelings, emotions and all those things have no place in geopolitics. Geopolitics is not about all that. But if you look at the record, uh, the patterns of history are important in geopolitics. The long-term record of a nation in a, in a bilateral relationship is also very important. It is a very good indicator of how a nation is prone to behave in the future as well. So from all those angles, Russia is a good partner for India. And from a geopolitical power balancing perspective also, India needs Russia to remain a strong nation a relatively strong nation economically and militarily in order to counterbalance China as well as give us give India us, uh, some kind of leverage against more powerful nations such as the Western Bloc. So that is where India stands in the geopolitical landscape. I've given you a very, very brief overview of what the global geopolitical landscape is like. I hope it has made sense to you all. So that's what the global world is like. It is increasingly becoming a bipolar world. Until the last four or five years, the world was kind of a multipolar place. You had a number of reasonably large powers and they were all cooperating. The system was going well. And now 
the, the tipping point has been reached and very quickly what we have seen is that all the illusions have been have been uh, drawn out and we are seeing the real balance of power in the world and which country stands where so we are quickly seeing a bipolarization of the world and the smaller nations the smaller powers once again let me show you uh, so if we look at the map if we look at the uh, small asian nations such as the philippines indonesia malaysia thailand myanmar sri lanka etc they're going to have a make a, they're going to have a make a choice they're going to have to make a choice in the coming years which camp do they want to go into do they want to go into the eastern camp the chinese led camp or do they want to go into the us led camp so that is going to be the choice because there's soon going to be only a one or a yes or no kind of choice you're either with us or against us that's how the world is going to be soon the 2020s is going to be the decade of significant and rapid change typically you will see change geopolitical change only from a decade upon decade uh perspective but in the 2020s you're going to see change which is very rapid and we, we are seeing the whole realignment happening in real time right now so very soon the world is going to be very bipolar and india is going to have to make a tough, tough choice which way does india go into several people asked me should india go into an alliance with russia and china well that's not such an easy choice first of all india and china have a very big issue the chinese have for decades refused they have refused consistently to demarcate the border india and china have a border that is thousands of kilometers long and that border is completely undemarcated and the chinese have refused to demarcate the border they keep delaying the process so it is clearly in their interest to keep the border undemarcated to keep the border open and un- and ambiguous so that they can keep needling india from the higher ground of uh, chinese occupied tibet and they can keep india off balance militarily politically etc so they want to keep india off balance they, because they fear india the chinese are are in public kind of contemptuous towards india that india is a poor nation india is what is an example of what happens when you have too much democracy and so on but at a deeper level the chinese are worried that if india gets its act together gets good leadership for 20 years then india can become a significantly powerful nation and genuinely could counterbalance china and the chinese want to be the only hegemonic power in the world eventually so that's why india is a problem long run for china so is russia but if india can persuade the chinese to demarcate the border we could make some trade offs of some kind if that happens then uh, then that possibility is also open of once the border is demarcated to open it, to enter in some kind of an alliance with china and russia also that is also a possibility you have to see the world from your from the perspective of your long term national interest who is the more reliable partner for you the chinese have a history of being bad partners they're not partners at all they have been enemies since the 1950s but if you take a longer perspective if you start the clock at 2000 years before today then india and china always had good relations the only problem now is that we have a common border which we never had before so if india and china can find some common ground and finalize the border issue demarcate the border and make it a thing of the past then there is a whole different kind of possibility that's open but that is as of today very unlikely that's kind of a pipe dream today so 
So that's where India is. India is walking the tightrope. We have on the one hand a very demanding US, a very angry US that wants India to ditch the Russians, but India needs Russia, right? But India also cannot go into the Russian uh, Russian camp openly because that would mean that we have to go into the Chinese camp, and China, as of today, is an enemy nation more or less. So that is where India stands today. Those are the hard choices India needs to make, and maybe we don't need need to make any choice today. What India needs to do in the next two, three, five years, at least five years, is to quietly keep your keep our head down and work on the economy, grow the economy, do more reforms, transform the economy, build a more powerful military, military, do these things, keep do the do the unglamorous work. Do the hard work, get your hands dirty, do it all, and maybe in five years' time we may be in a stronger position. But as of now, India is kind of alone, as you can see from this, from this perspective. You can see exactly where India is. Russia is more or less kind of into the Chinese camp. India is stuck in between. India has no friends, and please know this: the Americans are not India's friend. the americans are working with india for now in the quadrilateral alliance and other 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 such things because they need us to counterbalance china india has a certain utility for the us but they don't want india to rise too much no 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 that is not good because even the americans know that if you give india 50 years of time or even 20 years of time and if india gets its act together which means get good leaders and keep those leaders in power for the next 20 years then india could become a co- completely different kind of beast even the americans don't want it the chinese don't want it the russians may want it <laughs> so the long term alliance for india or like most people like to say long term friends could be the russians so that is how to look at the world from the indian perspective so i would like to leave you all with a very simple question i want to know your perspective who do you think india's friends are in the global jungle and who are the enemies by friends i mean nations with with whom india could cooperate i have not named all the nations with whom india has good relations whether it's in europe whether it's in other countries which other nations you think that india could partner with in the long run in the next 20 years in order to rise together and which other nations that india needs to be careful about in the next 20 years which are the nations that that could try to harm india in a variety of ways over the next 10 to 20 years so that's what i would like to do like you to think about and let me know in the comments below so that brings me to the end of the very first episode of the indian interest thank you very much for watching and i will see you next week in next week's episode thank you so much bye